I think one of the great gifts of Dharma teaching really lies in the capacity of this teaching to find its roots in whatever culture it is brought to. And certainly the forms and the styles of this teaching, in many ways as it finds its roots in the West, is undergoing quite some transformation. And in many of the, certainly many of the Dharma centers that I go to and travel to, um, it is sensed the way in which in the West it seems that many people are really um, choosing to establish this teaching in a way which is very uncluttered and unburdened. And I think Gaia House is, in many ways, one example of that. Um, Many people come here and they say the way in which they feel a sense of relief, almost, that it's possible to undertake a spiritual path or a spiritual practice without being obliged to adopt Um, the religious or social beliefs and attitudes of another culture. You know, your experience if you went to practice in Asia would be different than this. Um, I know it seemed, I don't know, I don't think it was imposed upon me, um, but certainly when I first began to practice in Asia, I did find a greater level of acceptance and acknowledgement through becoming as Asian as I could possibly be in order to practice the Dharma. I think at times in the West people express a sense of relief um, that in entering into this path and practice they don't feel like they meet a demand that they must become someone else in order to practice. For example, you probably have noticed when you came here that we didn't allocate robes in the beginning of the retreat and we haven't given bowing lessons yet and, you know, we actually don't use a whole lot of Pali language. Occasionally we slip the little word in here and there. Um, But it's not obviously a prerequisite. I think often people also feel a sense of relief that it's possible to practice without either, again, we didn't ask you to become a Buddhist before you came here or or to sign any sort of loyalty pledge. And for me, there's actually a great sense of, of wonder and a gift within that unburdened nature that it is possible to hear and take part in practice these very timeless and very profound teachings in a language and forms that we can connect with and understand. I think this also, there can be, and I know I feel this sense of appreciation of the simplicity, actually, particularly of, of insight or Vipassana practice, in the way that we engage with it here, that, you know, we're not kind of uh, being confronted with 
a pre-drawn diagram, you know, of how our practice should unfold with, you know, every goal and every signpost and every achievement clearly marked, that there is this sense of openness and an acknowledgement that your journey is actually your journey. And your journey is not going to look exactly the same as the journey of the person beside you. And that no one's journey or the way in which that unfolds is more or less worthy than the journey and the path of another. I think that simplicity really relieves us of a tremendous amount of, of pressure and burdens that you know, we can let go of notions of achievement, of attainment, of reaching somewhere. This is not a test. You know, this is not a, a spiritual test with any kind of examination or certificates that are going to be awarded at the end. Instead, we are asked here and in this path to be simply awake. Um, to nurture our own capacity in every moment for profound compassion, generosity, and understanding. We are learning very simple yet totally profound lessons in our lives about how to connect, how to embrace, how to let go. And this is a path which truly is moment to moment. It is not necessarily that we're looking for some production where now any of us is going to be able to say, you know, now I'm perfectly compassionate, you know, or now I'm a total expert in letting go. Because that is not the nature of this path. One moment it is possible, one moment we stumble. But we are learning and open to learning in every moment. I think this simplicity, to my mind, is very much in line um, with many of the things that you read in Buddhist suttas, where the Buddha would begin a teaching by saying, Ehi Pasiko, come and see, come and listen. He didn't say, you know, sit down and learn this, you know, or sit down and believe this, but come and see, come and listen and understand whether this is true in your experience. I know in our culture, you know, many of us live in a world which is, you know, so saturated with formulas and prescriptions and strategies and images about how to be and how to live that we live in a world where there are so many beliefs and expectations that tell us what we should become and what is acceptable and what is unacceptable about how to be perfect. And of course, all the endless messages we re also receive about the penalties uh, that we pay for imperfection. It's sometimes really a jump for us to make in our, in our consciousness, in our hearts, to be able to actually let go of that in this path. Many of you talk about that, you know, about how, you know, here you find yourself, you know, striving to breathe, 
as if our bodies don't know how to do this, you know, or striving to be yet more mindful how much this is part of our psyche, part of our conditioning. And one of our major lessons here is actually learning how really simple this all is. How totally simple it all is. Almost like it is simply waiting for us to wake up to what is already there. And this is also very much part of Buddhist teaching. You know, they use this word, obscuration. There are these obscurations. Not that we are necessarily trying to reach something else or somewhere else, but more trying to see through the obscurations that are getting in the way of what is already here. So this path is really not about perfection. It's about liberation. It's about being here and being awake. And sometimes, you know, we can also quite glory in how well we're doing in the West in making this transition, you know, and how well we're doing with transplanting the Dharma to the West. And I think also, it's, it's also very necessary to keep alive a sense of investigation and questioning. Because for those of you who've been to Asia, you know very well how the Dharma can become overlaid and burdened with so many cultural beliefs and rituals and social conventions. Well, you know, we are not so necessarily always wise here in this culture either. And it's very possible for us to overburden or to again clutter the simplicity of this path with our own culturally conditioned beliefs and assumptions and conventions. It is interesting the ways in which our practice, unless it's undertaken with a real sense of investigation, um, it actually can become an extension of some of the confusions that burden our lives elsewhere. You know, some of them I've already mentioned, that our tendencies towards striving can be simply transferred, you know, from our lives to the past. You know, our tendencies toward greed can be simply transferred. You know, instead of lusting after a new Mercedes, you know, we start lusting after an absorption state. You know, our, our tendencies towards attachment can also be simply transferred to the past. You know, I mean, what's happening, you know, when we find ourselves grieving over the loss of the last good sitting? You know, this is, you know, it has something to do with our lives. And it is really, I think, really helpful to be always looking, always questioning the ways in which that transference can take place. I would just like to look this evening at, you know, some of the ways in which kind of the Dharma in Asia and the Dharma in the West is kind of unfolding and the ways it can take on the shades of our own conditioning, our own tendencies. Um, in Asia, which is essentially the home of this teaching, 
One of the things that I experienced and appreciated very much in Asia within some of the teachers and, and places I was able to practice in was the uncompromising, at times, approach to the path. You know, the way that many teachers and places actually present the Dharma is very simple. Again, it is that practice is undertaken with only one intention, and that is to be liberated, that that is the point of practicing. This is not true of all teachers in all places, of course. But some, you know, have this very simple approach that the only reason to practice is in order to awaken to the same profound wisdom, the same enlightenment that the Buddha awoke to on the eve of his awakening. This intention or this emphasis, of course, very much flavors the way in which the practice is both taught and undertaken. For example, if our task here is simply to be enlightened, then in some ways the practice becomes a lot simpler. And in some ways it can seem to be much simpler. Because if our practice here and our intention here is simply to be liberated, then the emphasis in the practice takes a particular flavor. And one of the flavors that it takes on in that intention is that, you know, this practice simply is about a total commitment to non-dwelling, um, a total willingness to let go in each moment deeply and gladly, it is then a practice of calm and investigation, and it is equally then a practice always of challenging ourselves. And this was certainly true in, in some of the places I practice in Asia, was that the practice was actually there to challenge us. It meant, you know, when a desire arose, you didn't follow it. A want arose, it was not there to be pursued. It was an emphasis of not lingering on any thought, on any feeling, on any sensation, not lingering anywhere. In some ways, it's a more, it's a kind of an ascetic practice. You know, not ascetic in the terms of abusing and punishing, but, you know, totally uncluttered and totally unencumbered. It's so, so very simple. With the emphasis on simply continuing the letting go, not feeding the self anywhere, it's an approach that can be vital and exciting. It's also an approach which can be very misused. In the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutra, which is where this practice has its origins, the, the Buddha begins by saying, in order to meditate, we sit down, we establish ourselves in mindfulness, not grasping at anything in the world, but mindfully knowing each moment just as it is to the extent that is necessary for understanding. Now, one form of actually applying that instruction is to actually take not grasping very seriously to take not grasping as actually the emphasis in our practice. 
in relationship to feelings, in relationship to thoughts, in relationship to our bodies, in relationship to anything that is received through the sense drives, the continual application of letting go, of not grasping anywhere, not lingering anywhere, but knowing things just as they are. This is actually the practice of mindfulness. Not grasping anywhere through any of the sense doors, but knowing things just as they actually are, without the extra baggage of, you know, where do they come from, where do they go, are they good, are they bad, does something need resolving, does it need improving, does it need fixing, does it need uh, perfecting, always in every moment the response is the same, to be mindful, to be mindful, just to let go. To not invest any notion of self in anything at all, not I am. Not I am thinking, I am feeling, I have, I want, I know, but simply to see the thought in the thought, the feeling in the feeling, the sensation in the sensation. Not interested necessarily in any of the contents, but to rest very wholeheartedly just in the seeing. It's interesting, you know, and I'm not trying to also suggest that this is a good idea, but um, something that's interesting to me is that in all of the years that I practiced in Asia, I never once spoke to any of my teachers about anything which could be called a problem. I never once spoke to any of my teachers about my story, my past, my relationships, my feelings. And again, I want to stress, I'm not saying this is a good idea. You know, don't expect you all to turn up tomorrow, you know, you know, you know, got nothing to say. But just to have this interesting sort of comparison. There was a reason that I never did that. And the reason is because mostly my teachers had never had a single clue what I was talking about. They wouldn't have had an idea. And I think actually the word problem didn't probably exist in their vocabulary. They wouldn't have had, you know, really much of an understanding of what that meant even, you know, except maybe the lingering mental state or something. But they wouldn't actually have had any sense of what was being spoken about. Um, So, of course, you didn't even try to talk about it. Um, the advice, you know, knowing what the advice was going to be ahead of time actually made interviews really simple, you know, because whether I'd gone to one of my teachers and talked about my relationship to a bird or relationship to my father, the answer would have always been the same, you know, be mindful, let go. You know, if I'd gone and, you know, spoken about, um, you know, some horrific childhood experience or the fact that I stubbed my toe. Again, the answer would have been exactly the same, you know, be mindful, let go. In my experience in practicing in Asia, actually, you know, there was a little shortage of instructions about sort of how to deal with things. Um, You know, teachers could talk for hours about, you know, the intricacies of a sutra, but if it came to actually talking about a person, um, you know, it was almost like this was a this was a non-starter as far as far as uh, conversation went. 
Now there is, I know, there is, I think, something very, very joyful and profound, actually, about the simplicity of this approach that has such a clear sense of vision that we sit in order to be free, that we practice in order to be enlightened. But I think there also are some weaknesses. You know, there are some weaknesses. And I think one of the weaknesses is in somehow relating to our human life, our human story, almost as if it doesn't exist, you know, pretending it's not there or ignoring it in some way. And I think the weakness, too, lies in overlooking the power on a moment-to-moment level, actually, of some of the baggage that we carry with us in our lives and perhaps not really understanding the ways in which this practice can be applied to liberate in us from some of that baggage rather than just trying to always put it on one side. I know in... Sometimes there is an overlooking, I think, of of the need that there is to have some personal understanding some personal insight in our lives to act as a very strong foundation for understanding impermanence, for understanding suffering, for understanding emptiness. You know, and little value is actually often given in Asia to that understanding. Also, I would say in my experience, it, it was really possible to have incredibly grand and dramatic meditation experiences you know, to have really far out and, and wonderful experiences of samadhi and bliss and altered states of consciousness and transcendental sort of experiences that were, you know, remarkably illuminating and inspiring and expanding and also possible to, to know that when those experiences actually came to an end, which is the nature of all experiences, that when those experiences came to an end, that sometimes very little, it seemed, had been done through them to uproot many of the kind of belief systems or patterns of conditioning I was carrying with me. And almost like those patterns of conditioning would be waiting for the experience to end. So they could sort of jump out and grab me and say, ha ha, you know, you thought you were doing so well. Well, look at this one, you know. Um, I know one time I was practicing in, in McLeod Ganj in the Tibetan tradition. And part of my practice at that time was um, supposedly nurturing this boundless um, compassion for all beings, and a part of that was, you know, trying to regard, trying to learn to regard all sentient beings as I would my mother. It was okay, I had an okay relationship with my mother, so that, that actually worked okay for me. Um, but it was so, it was very easy, you know, I mean, I lived in a really beautiful place, you know, incredibly beautiful in the Himalayas, really nice people wonderful teacher. It was really, felt really compassionate most of the time. And then one day, we had this dog who lived. Well, it wasn't our dog, but this dog lived, this Indian dog lived around 
our house and this dog used to have some really disgusting habits you know like it would go and kind of linger in the latrines and the toilets and then it would kind of linger in our kitchens you know most of the time actually we tried to be very compassionate towards this dog um, often very unsuccessfully but felt we were trying and I remember one day I felt so outraged with this dog um, that I chased it out of my room and I was chasing it down this path actually filled with rage actually and I picked up a rock to throw at this dog and I turned the corner on this path and ran into my teacher with my arm upraised holding this rock um, needless to say I felt slightly mortified that I was not actually practicing the way I was supposed to but what did become you know so very very clear about was about how easy it is perhaps for all of us to feel you know boundlessly compassionate and patient and joyful and forgiving when we're sitting on a cushion but in many ways it's what happens when we're off the cushion that's really important you know if there's that wonderful zen saying that says you know if you want to know about a zen master ask his wife <laughs> you know and this is somehow true for us you know because what we do on a cushion is not necessarily always how we are truly most deeply embodying what we understand um, you know, it's easy for us, probably you find it here, you know, when you're sitting in meditation, it can be really calm, you know, it can actually be really peaceful and you can be filled with goodwill, you know, towards everybody in the room and, you know, really appreciating their presence and their support, you know, but then what happens when, you know, lunch is late, you know, or our roommate snores, or somebody comes late into a sitting, you know, how quickly that sense of goodwill can just be like a dream, you know, it's just gone, we, we wonder where it's gone, but suddenly there's like this whole parade of other feelings that come out, you know, we can also sit here, you know, and really be practicing letting go, you know, we're letting go of our thoughts, we're letting go of our memories and our fantasies and meanwhile you know we've stashed a banana in our cup you know just in case we get hungry later you know it's like our letting go has got these limits you know I'll let go as long as it doesn't disturb me you know or as long as I don't have to do without um, you know sometimes we can again be, be so mindful and then you know, maybe every day we find ourselves first in the lunch line. You know, is it a coincidence? You know, or what is actually moving us there? Or, or we find ourselves, you know, walking behind somebody who walks slowly. You know, you get that one here. You know, thinking, wish they'd hurry up. You know, why are they so slow? You know, I want to get to my walking place so I can be mindful, you know. And we're thinking these ways that we can pass this yogi as if we're kind of in a race somewhere, you know. It does seem that when there is, you know, of course it's tempting to sideline personal insight. You know, because it makes our path seem much less disturbing. 
if we don't actually have to apply it, you know? Because we can be very grand in our minds. And, you know, when something happens, like, you know, lusting after another yogi or shooting daggers at them, we can just put it aside and say, well, that's just stuff, you know? That doesn't matter, you know? Or that, that's insignificant, that's not really part of my spiritual life, you know? Or that's my, you know, lesser self that is somehow doing that. And sometimes it's tempting to think, well, I'll just put that aside. That doesn't matter. You know, that's, that's not relevant. But it becomes clear, I think, that, you know, unless there is this kind of actualization of the Dharma, actualization of the teaching within everything that we do, then also what we are trying to do is somehow compartmentalize insight or compartmentalize our path and separate it from our lives. And so no wonder that, you know, so many people speak about having problems about integrating the path because this kind of hierarchy, um, this separation can already be created. Now I think sometimes when we are faced with the dilemma of this gap, you know, sometimes between our practice and our lives, it's there. Then, you know, the obvious question to ask is, well, you know, why not bring the same mindfulness to those moments of irritation and annoyance and resistance? Why not bring the same mindfulness there as we bring to our sitting and walking? And it's a good question to ask. It's a good question to ask. Why we somehow see that as being less worthy or less deserving of the mindfulness and the same clarity of intention and attention that we bring to our formal practice. But I think it is also very, also very important to acknowledge um, that no one has yet created or invented a path to enlightenment that bypasses our notions of self. No one has yet managed to do that, to somehow leapfrog over our personal story in order to reach the enlightened story. Now the sense of ourself, who we are, in the very many ways that it manifests, is almost like an enduring companion in our lives. You know, our notion of who we are manifests in our beliefs, our likes, our dislikes, our preferences, our fears, our opinions, our prejudices, our resistances, our judgments. Um, all of this, you know, has much to do with our notion, our belief about self about who we are. It seems that along with the inspiration and the clarity that is needed to be mindful in each moment, there is also needed actually some foundation of acceptance and forgiveness and compassion and loving-kindness that actually these are the qualities of heart and mind that allow us to rest 
rather than to struggle. That these are the qualities of heart and mind that allow us to come close to this moment and to come close to all of these manifestations of self that arise without resistance, but with calmness and with balance. Now, one of the questions I find that often people bring up in practice is, you know, how much self is actually needed? You know, like in the West, I think we have this rather unique philosophy that says that in order to let go of the self, first you need a very strong self to let go of. This is kind of a kind of common theory. I must say it's one that I have some doubts about. I personally don't see why or how it's easier to let go of a strong notion of self necessarily than a weak notion of self. Otherwise, you can imagine all these people in our world who'd be liberated, you know, these racing car drivers and football heroes and, you know, presidents and prime ministers, Margaret Thatcher would be a bodhisattva, you know, and, you know, it doesn't really seem to actually make any real sense. It seems more to me, in my understanding, that a prerequisite to being able to let go of notions of self and all of their belief systems, that a prerequisite in being able to let go is actually the willingness to question their reality. That that, that is primary. That there must be the willingness to question their reality, whether they're weak notions of self, strong notions of self, you know, highly sophisticated notions of self, or very gross notions of self, that in or the path of beginning to see through, the path of, be of transparency beginning, lies in our actual willingness on a moment-to-moment -moment level to question how real all of this actually is. I mean, that maybe it seems obvious, but lots of times we don't do it. Lots of times we, we may not find ourselves willing to question, you know, when we're caught up in some grand, you know, preoccupation or grand obsession or grand struggle. You know, it often seems like it's the last question we ask. How real is this? And yet, maybe that really needs to be the first question we ask. How real is this notion of I that is here? More, we find perhaps ourselves tempted to get caught in the changing descriptions about ourselves. You know, the descriptions that say, I'm, I'm sad, or, you know, I'm anxious, or I'm fearful, or I'm, I'm angry. We see how often we are tempted to get caught in these changing and passing descriptions and judgments that are moving through our consciousness. And when we are caught, then it seems very, very difficult to actually feel able to rest with ease in this moment or to rest with ease within ourselves. 
And this is the place, the way, why, you know, both the willingness to question and this foundation of acceptance and loving kindness and forgiveness is actually so crucial in the whole process of letting go. Because letting go, don't think of it as being some, you know, sort of dramatic renunciation. You know, I think sometimes we get um, detoured by those ideas, you know, that letting go looks like some, you know, major revelation, you know, let go, you know. Letting go is often much more subtle than that. It is simply not consenting to believe in. And when there is not the consenting to believe in something, a judgment, an image, a memory, then that judgment or image or memory doesn't have any fuel to continue. So the letting go is actually very natural. It's not something I've done. You know, it's not something that I say, I've let go of that one. No, the letting go is actually very natural because there's nothing to make anything stick. So it doesn't look like a neon headlight, a headline, you know. It's, it's not a dramatic moment necessarily. You know, it's, it's a very natural, a very gentle passing through. So sometimes we do acknowledge actually that we would be very much supported and helped in our path by feeling a deeper level, feeling connected with deeper levels of compassion and acceptance and loving-kindness. Of course, then, one of the errors that we're tempted to make is to think, well, it's up to me to develop these qualities. You know, I must become more loving. I must, uh, you know, strive to become more, more forgiving, more accepting. I have to learn how to do this. But it also, I feel, that these qualities of loving-kindness or forgiveness or compassion, that they're not possessions of the self. You know, that they're, they're not kind of achievements that I make happen. They're not something that kind of I am going to produce through time or through effort. It feels more like these qualities of compassion and acceptance and forgiveness, that in many ways these qualities are the very natural outcome of being mindful, of understanding what it means to be present. That they, it's part of the package, you know? It's not a question of exaggerated responsibility, but they are what happens when we learn how to be mindful, when we learn how to be present, when we incline more and more and love actually being awake and present in this moment. Very naturally, what do we find? That there's more acceptance, that there is forgiveness, that there is compassion. They are not possessions of the self. You know, sometimes in response to this question of how much self do we actually need in order to deepen in this practice or in order to be awake? Personally, I feel if you've got enough self to get here, that's enough. You know, that you don't actually need any more. That, that's already enough. You know, it got you here. Once you get here, I don't think it's necessary for anybody to start undertaking a path of, 
of strengthening the self because you already started a different pathway. To get here is actually enough. That's the hard part. I think, you know, in the West, for different reasons, we struggle very deeply with this whole idea of letting go. One way we struggle with it is trying to make it into this very big, dramatic deal. But we also struggle with letting go because of fear. You know, because we fear that if, you know, unless we're in charge, unless we're in control, unless we're on top of everything, Everything's going to fall apart. You know, our universe is going to crumble. We're going to be out of control. Our world is going to dissolve into chaos. You know, we tend to carry with us all these doomsday scenarios about what will happen, you know, if we let go, or if we're not actually in charge. I think also we grow up in a culture, you know, where there's a very much a strong background of being encouraged to develop the self, you know, be someone, you know, be someone special, you know, be unique, be an individual, uh, make your mark in the world, you know. This is often, you know, very much a part of our learning process in this culture. And I think sometimes that learning process is there at the expense of actually any sense of, of mystical awakening. I mean, sadly, I think in our, many, much of our culture, we tend to rather subdue the prospect of any sense of mystical awakening. You know, it's, yeah, it all feels rather a little bit scary and weird, you know, and even though it's, it's apparently it's a fairly common experience in people's lives that they have some sort of mystical experience. Um, apparently, this is not at all unusual. And yet we're supposed to forget about it, you know, and actually get on with the serious work of developing ourselves. This is, you know, it's an odd set of values. You know, it's like someone once said to me, well, you know, enlightenment's great idea. You know, enlightenment's a really good idea, but it's not going to put dinner on the table. You know, as if somehow, you know, we needed to kind of stay unenlightened in order to get dinner on the table. Um, I think sometimes we, we can, I think this is part of our suffering as human beings, is, is to feel, you know, a kind of inner impoverishment or a, a, a kind of a loss, a, a sacred loss in a way, of a real deep trust and confidence in our capacity to be free. You know, this is almost like a foreign notion. Um, apparently, this has not always been so, not in the West, not in the East. You know, the, the Buddha said very clearly over and over again, you know, that intrinsically our nature is unconditioned, timeless, deathless, beyond all limitation that intrinsically our essential nature is free. And I would be curious, you know, to do a little survey, you know, and check out, who, does anybody actually believe that? You know, is that part of our belief system? Is that something that we feel very close to in our heart? Or does that sound like, oh no, that was the, the Buddha and all this kind of, you know, our hands, you know, it's got nothing to do with, with this life, you know, or with this moment. 
Sometimes when we feel separate, I think, from that very deep sense of confidence and trust in our own essential nature, you know, we make substitutions to try and fill up that vacuum. You know, we substitute striving and having and proving for richness, for being. Now, when in meditation we are becoming a little bit more still and quiet within ourselves, when we do begin to listen inwardly, what we do meet, of course, in that listening, is that we meet ourselves. We meet the I story. This is what we meet. We meet the I story. Awareness, awakening to our inner landscape, also means awakening to the I story as it unfolds in our bodies, in our thoughts, in our feelings, in our images. You know, we meet the I story in those moments of anger and in the moments of dullness and in the moments of resistance. We meet the I story over and over and when we say, I am, I have, I know, I don't know, I don't have, don't have. Sometimes in meditation when we begin to listen inwardly, it is almost seems as if this inner listening actually magnifies the I story. You know, it feels like it's much more active than before we began to meditate. You know, it feels like there's more thoughts, more feelings, more memories, more fantasies, which is why, you know, many people say that they, especially in the beginning of retreats, they tend to say, you know, before I began to meditate, I was a normal person. And now I began to meditate, and I am this kind of neurotic tangle of confusion. And it's, uh, it's actually, it's not true that meditation makes you worse. hope you accept that. But actually that we become much more aware of what is going on. Sometimes, though, what happens is that our inner listening provokes into consciousness, or provokes into the light of awareness, much of our conditioning. Many of our tendencies, you know, even those deeply buried tendencies, somehow appear on the surface. Now, there's a point here where we need to be very careful. Because in being brought into the light of awareness, there is a tremendous temptation then to make that awakened I story into our path. To suddenly feel like we have a very big menu in our practice. You know, as I talked about in the beginning of the talk where, you know, the only thing on the menu was enlightenment. Well, somehow, when we become conscious of this tapestry of our inner world, sometimes we can find that actually our menu in practice suddenly really expands. You know, we've got hors d'oeuvres, we've got main courses, we've got desserts, you know, we've got all these things to work on, all these things that need attention, all these things that we need a little more of, or a little less of, or should be a little bit better, or should be absent. Suddenly, the I story comes to the surface, and we can begin, or tempted to begin, to make this our path. And we see how that happens. You know, how suddenly we find ourselves, in the practice, having projects, or missions, you know? I've got to fix that one, you know, or find the answer to that one, or find the cause of this anger, or uh, find a special tool in order to fix this judgment tendency. You know, suddenly we become or assume 
this exaggerated sense of responsibility. What are we doing here? We're buying into the perfection myth once more. You know, we're just buying into the perfection myth once more and feeling like it's all up to me. It's my job, it's my responsibility, and if I do well, it's my success, and if I don't do well, it's my failure. Well, this is a kind of a totally a superimposition of our own conditioning upon the path. There is nothing in this path that says it is up to you, that it's a question of success and failure. There's nothing there. There's nothing in this path that says you have to fix something or that you have to be responsible. I mean, how responsible are you really, you know? I mean, so did you get up the mor- this morning and say, oh, it's a great day to be depressed, you know, or yes, I think I'm going to be really irritated today. Well, most of us don't do that. You know, now all of these things that arise and pass, they don't arise and pass because I invited them, chose them, or bid them to come forth. Instead, we need to see that this arising, of course, it is a process. It is a process of unfoldment. Many of the things that arise, they are, in a way, think of it very optimistically, our confusions are clarifying themselves. Here they are. Here they are, inviting us just to see. Inviting us just to see. Inviting us just to learn, to be awake, to be with them, not to be in charge. You know, the reason that we get so much tempted to be in charge is because we equate our sense of self with the contents of our experience. That's the only reason we get tempted to be in charge. We think, oh yes, if there's judgment arising, it means I'm a judgmental person. If there's anger arising, it means I'm very angry. If there's fear present, we assume that means that I'm a very fearful person, you know. So we're not very happy with this description. We'd like to have a more um, pleasant notion, a respectable and acceptable notion of self. And so we think it's up to us to make it better, to fix it. But only because we have equated our sense of self, identified it, with the contents of our experience. And we see how true that is all the time. I mean, if you have a really wretched, really appalling, disgusting, horrible sitting, you know, how many times do you get up out of that sitting thing? I'm a terrific meditator. You know? Most of the time we get up and say, oh, you know, I'm a wretched, terrible, appalling person. Right? We see the ways in which our sense of self gets identified. Well, here in this path, we are actually saying that much of what arises in the forms of confusion and tendencies, that this is actually the arising and the perception of confusion and ignorance. And actually, no one is to blame for ignorance. It's nobody's fault. Ignorance is not your fault. That's a very good basis to begin with. You know, it's not your fault. It's not up to you to fix it. Our invitation again and again in the path is not to fix, not to seek for perfection, but to awaken into Awaken into what is already here, without judgment, without prejudice, but to awaken into what is already here. 
you know, to try and find through this path an acceptable and improved version of the self is simply accepting perfection as a tyrant in our life, in our meditation, just as perfection has been a tyrant in our lives. You know? And for many of us, that has been true. You know, we try and do everything right. You know, we read the right books, go to the right movies, you know, meet the right gurus, you know, try to do everything right, you know, in order to feel like somehow we're acceptable. But maybe it is not a question of becoming acceptable. But awakening into is the very nature of acceptance. You know, we can become so expert at trying to become something that we forget what it means to be. So absorbed in the task of arriving somewhere else that we forget that there is not another moment apart from this one that is more ripe for being awakened. You know, that, that is a wonderful fantasy to surrender. There is not a better moment that's more ripe and more available to be awakened than the moment that we are actually in. In some ways, to have that shift, to have that change of heart that allows us to turn towards what is right here is also what allows us to be at peace is what acceptance is actually all about. It's not a complicated formula. It is turning towards what is right here in this moment. And we are at peace. If you had something that was very precious to you, like a very precious jewel, and you dropped it, into a pond, then in a slightly murky pond, then clearly the best way of finding that jewel is not to take a stick and stir up the pond, you know, desperately looking for it. The best way to find that jewel is to have the patience to allow the mud to settle so it becomes clear. So it becomes apparent. And this too is our practice. We're not here to stir up the mud with striving or forcing or images of perfection, but to have the patience to simply allow the mud to settle. Then it does become clear. If we have a moment or two quietly together, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.